After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who, sit on, he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both freemen and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make great war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two men were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Hard to believe, but we only have three sermons to go uh, before we finish the, the letter. And uh, two more at uh, church here. And then one final one in uh, three weeks as we gather together at Fish Creek Park on June 19th for our, our last hurrah at Revelation. Have any of you heard of the Folio Society? Folio, F-O-L-I-O, Folio Society. 
Okay, I had neither until this week. <laughs> the Folio Society is an independent publisher of books. And according to their own claims on their website, not only do they strive to make the books they publish beautiful with really fancy covers, they publish a broad range of books from the world's great works of fiction to nonfiction. Well, back in 2014, in the United Kingdom, Great Britain, they sent out a question to some of its members. And the question was this, which book do you think has been the most influential in society? Which book, you know, we sell hundreds on this website, which book do you think is the most influential in society? The results came back in secular Britain and said 37% said the Bible. Top of the charts, the Bible is number one. Interestingly enough, second place was Darwin's Origin of Species at 35%. Only 2% difference, so we're, we're dealing with a pretty close margin there. Interesting how those two things are opposed to one another in terms of uh, creator versus evolution as a fight for societal grounds. But here's what was really important beyond this, was when they asked the question as to why you thought the Bible was the most influential, and why they thought it was the best book ever written, it, said, it basically said this. The, the answer from the, the uh, members was this. We think that it was the best book in terms of providing humanity with guidelines and how to be a good person. So it's number one in how to teach people to be a good person. Now, while, the, while we can't deny that the Bible has to say a lot about morality, it shows actually in Great Britain the rather shallow understanding that the members of the Folio Society have. Because is this truly the main reason why the, why the Bible was written? Well, John's message from us to Revelation, from Revelation in chapter 19 is to say a resounding no. It can include that, but that's not why the Bible is written. In chapter 19 through the end, John's going to add another dimension to understanding the scriptures. He's going, to, he's going to tell us that the world as it exists today is heading to a climax. It's heading to an end. And every human being is going to be faced with the inescapable reality that Jesus is coming back. Not only to judge those who've rejected him, but also to set up his kingdom where he will rule for eternity. Christ will be the ultimate victor and the ultimate king. So I've divided this sermon into three sections. And for your outline, we're going to talk about the praise of the king, verses 1 through 10. The portrait of the king, verses 11 through 16 and the power of the king, verses 17 to 21. So the entire chapter is going to talk about the return of Christ and what that looks like for people who've rejected him and for people who have received him in this lifetime. But before he does this, he opens up the scene from heaven in which we see this great multitude in verse 1 praising God, praising God, and with a particular chorus in mind. Look at verse 1 halfway down. He says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous, for He has judged the great harlot who was corrupt in the earth with her immorality, and has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. 
And the second time they said, Hallelujah! His smoke rises up forever and ever. Look at me with verse 6. They sing out again, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. I didn't realize this until I began studying Revelation this week, that the word hallelujah, which has occurred three times in chapter 19, um, this is the only place in the New Testament where that word is used. It's the only place in the Old Testament where hallelujah is actually mentioned. It means, in Greek, you praise Yahweh. You praise Yahweh. Now, uh, even though it's found nowhere else in the New Testament, it is found abundantly in the Old. And it's the phrase in the Old Testament, praise the Lord. So when, when Abilene read praise the Lord in Psalm 146, that means hallelujah. It's the same words. Apparently the reason why they don't say praise Yahweh is the Jews had so much reverence for God's name and they were so afraid of taking his name in vain that they wouldn't use the word Yahweh in any other language. So they substituted the word Yahweh for Adonai, which is the Lord. And that's why you always see praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and not praise Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now what's important about our context is what the praise is for. Why are they singing hallelujah? Well, John records two different arenas. And the first one is actually found in verse 1. He says, praise God, like hallelujah, um, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments and, uh, are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. The praise here is remembered for the fall of Babylon, which in that context is the fall of Rome. So he's fast forwarding to this sort of like, he's prophesying about the fall of Rome, and he's already. Uh, praising God as if it's already been done. It's a done action. Rome will fall. And so there's this chorus in heaven singing, praise God that his judgments are true and he's judged this great harlot who's corrupted the world. Deceived the world and has gone after God's people. And so there's praise for judgment here. And this is really, this is really interesting when you think about it in our context as well. Because we think, do we actually praise in these ways when we see God's judgments come upon things? Do we consider those praiseworthy items? But in this context, we see that it is. It is. And it's also a very stark contrast to those who align themselves with Rome. Do you remember last week what the response was when Babylon fell? In verse 9 of chapter 18, the kings were in mourning. The merchants were in mourning in verse 11. And the mariners, all the shipmasters and so on, the sailors, were in mourning and they were weeping. So on one side, with the fall of Babylon in the world, you have people mourning. On the other side, on God's side, those allegiant to Jesus Christ are praising because this corrupt world has been judged. So what we learn here is important again because we have to balance it with God's heart. We know that God desires repentance. And He's super gracious and super merciful and is a God of second, third, and fourth, and fifth chances. But there does come a time, there does come a time when time actually runs out. And now judgment is the only thing left for Him to exact. And this is why we can trust in the Lord for His timing in these things. 
especially in light of Romans 12, 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we don't have to take justice into our own hands, the Lord says, because he will repay. And his judgments are righteous and true, and so we have to just trust in him for those. The second arena in which judgment was, uh, or praise was given, was not only for the defeat of one empire, but the establishment of another. And we pick this up in verse 5 and 6. He gives, says, Give praise to our God, all ye of his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard someone like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. So again, praise is to be given, looking into the future, not only for the defeat of one empire, but the establishment of God's. Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And again, really important in their context in which they're suffering. They're under a, a, an empire, under a autocracy, or yeah, autocracy, is that the word? Autonomy, whatever the word is. <laughs> um, that's like powerful and, and corrupt. And so what hope to know that his kingdom is coming and he will one day reign. But I want you to notice especially how he defines this reign. What does that ruling look like and what else are we to celebrate? He, he describes it as being a marriage. He describes that, that coexistence with the Lord in this eternal kingdom as being a marriage in which is a great feast. In verse 7 he says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. John obviously is using marriage type language. And, and accompanies it by a big feast to describe what Christ's victory is going to look like and are joining in with him. It's a wedding ceremony with a feast with the king, with a supper provided for the king. Now, this idea of marriage and having a feast with the Lord is always used in the, in the Old Testament. It's really common for God to describe his relationship with people as a marriage and a picture of him in, as feasting with him. Think of Isaiah 54, for example, in the category of marriage. He says, Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there's no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of widowhood. For your Creator will be your husband. The Lord of Heaven's armies is His name. He is your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from grief, as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband. On this mountain... The Lord says, My people will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples and a banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. So we see this picture in the Old Testament of God's relationship to his people as being one of marriage in which a big meal is celebrated. This is why Jesus himself in the New Testament refers to to our relationship to him in this way as well in Matthew 22. Remember the parable of the feast? The parable of the marriage feast? And he starts off by saying this, the kingdom of God can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 
in verse 2, says, I am jealous for you with the jealousy of, of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, that is Christ. So again, there's a picture of marriage and feasting with the Lord as a picture of intimacy, a picture of closeness, and it's one giant party, one giant celebration. It's a joyous occasion. And no wonder then he, the people in heaven are singing hallelujah. Praise Yahweh, praise our Lord for what this is going to be like. It's one giant party. And God's provided the meal. He's provided the meal. And of course the meal is symbolic for the joyous occasion. But I want you to notice how one gets invited to the meal. <laughs> and what's important. In verse 8, it says, It was given to herself to clothe with herself in fine linen, brought, uh, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Before that, he says that the bride has made herself ready in verse 7. So there's an invitation to the supper banquet, but the bride has made herself ready. And these fine linens are described as the righteous acts of the saints. Now we know, we know that we enter into relationship with Jesus Christ by what he first did for us. We know that. Revelation 5.9, I'll just remind you of this. Revelation 5.9 says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the initial relationship with Jesus Christ is founded on his death for us, and him receiving him by faith to be forgiven of sin. But here, John puts the emphasis on what our response to God's love for us. He says, you've dressed yourself in these linens, which are the right, righteous acts of the saints. In other words, we've made ourselves ready by obeying the Lord by the way we live. We make ourselves ready by the way we, we live in relation to him. So there's two, there's two deaths, so to speak, at Calvary. Him for us, and then from there on in, us for him in terms of how we live. And he defines these linens as righteous acts of the saints. So again, it's working together. Christ brings us into relationship with him, and then we honor him by the way we live. And as we know from the message of Revelation, there's been lots of compromise going on in the church back then. And so the call last week was to come out of her, my people. Come out of her. So that's the praise to the king. Let's look at the portrait of the king. Verses 11 to 16. In all these uh, descriptions here, they're kind of divided into two categories. Jesus is described in a physical, with a physical appearance, and, uh, in terms of attributes, but he's also given names and titles. So let's first look at the attributes in physical uh, of nature. First of all, we see him riding a white horse in verse 11. Of course, this would be a symbol of triumph a symbol of victory in the first century. And it's important, I think, because when do victors ride a white horse in battle? After they've won the war. You don't walk out in, in your white horse like, you know, to symbol that you've triumphed until you've won the battle. But here Jesus is riding on the white horse already because he knows the battle is his and it's already won. So he's come out, arrayed, is triumphant. How about his eyes being in flames of fire in verse 12? This means that his eyes are, uh, as the flames of fire means that it's burning and penetrating. So there's no place to hide from the Lord. He knows what's going on. He sees the spiritual condition of everyone. 
And I think it's like, um, it's used in a judicial sense. Like, you know how we always say, like, like, I can feel the eyes burning in the back of my head? Or mom gives you that particular look when you're a kid, and the kid knows, she's not looking at me with love here, she's looking at me with a judicial, like, I'm in trouble type of look, right? And every mom's got that look, and everybody knows what that look looks like. <laughs> but that's like, everyone knows, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And this is what they're saying about the Lord. He, he sees all. He's coming in a judicial sense. He also has diadems on his head. The word diadem is another word for crown. So it's a symbol of total authority. He's got total authority. And now what's interesting, you may not remember this, but the dragon representing Satan in chapter 12 had diadems on his crown, or on his head. And the beast in chapter 13 also had crowns. So what he's saying here is Jesus has crowns beyond their crowns. They may think they act with authority, but Christ has ultimate authority over them. And this is important, again, as a picture of, of him. He's also got a robe, uh, robe dipped in blood. Now there's a debate as to whose blood this is. Some believe it's his own blood. It's his own blood, while others think it's the, the blood of those he's going to like basically slay. So if it's his own blood, he's conquered the enemy through his own death. Or if it's others, it's taken from imagery from places like Isaiah 63, where God is stained with the blood of the Edomites after he goes out against Israel's army. And again, God's not actually stained with his blood. It's just, again, it's metaphorical language to say he's a victor over them. So I'll let you figure out which one you think it is in that context. Maybe, maybe both is in mind here. He also has a sharp sword from his mouth in verse 15, and it's clear this is an instrument of judgment. Because after that, he says, he goes out and he strikes down the nations with it, and he rules them with a rod of iron. So again, just like the eyes, the sword has a judicial role to play. But Jesus also has titles and names, and so he's called faithful and true in verse 11. This again is a title of total dependency. The Lord is depend you can depend on him. He's a promise keeper, if you will. He doesn't break his, break his promises. Again, an important in a uh, world full of lies and deceit, especially where the earthly leaders don't keep their promises, we can believe in our king who does. And again, in a world of struggle, this is really important for us to know that Christ is faithful and dependent in what he says. And so he makes a declaration, I'm coming back, I will judge. And so we can, we can bank that his word is true. A name no one knows is another title for him in verse 12. I'm not exactly what, uh, this mean, sure what this means. I read through the commentaries and I, nothing was sort of totally convincing. It could be rooted in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah. If you want the references, I can give them to you later. But it might be just simply this. That as much as you and I know about Jesus from the scriptures and through experiencing him through the Holy Spirit, there's going to be part of him and his nature and character that will always be a mystery to us. And we won't actually know that until we receive him in glory, or he receives us in glory. And I was thinking about this, you know, like I'm, I'm talking to John all the time on Zoom once a week in Ireland about his trip here. I'm getting to know him better. But the thing is, I am never going to know him fully to the same degree as when he actually shows up here. Because he's going to reveal his, 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 you know, how he walks and how he laughs and, and how tall he is and like how he relates to his family and what he's like to be with in worship and on the streets. We're going to learn a whole bunch of things about him and his family that we don't know now. So it's, although we do know who he is to some degree, we know his name, 
He also has a name that no one knows because we haven't fully embraced this character yet. And so this is the way I think that potentially um, John is speaking about Christ. He's also titled the Word of God. Um, this should be pretty familiar to us. Remember John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on, the Word became flesh. It's just a, it's a, title, to show, um, it's a title to show that Jesus was divine, and that he has total authority. Um, when he, you know, when the Old Testament, when God spoke, his will was accomplished, and his works were done. And then in Hebrews it says that after God spoke to his people through prophets and other ways, in the last days he spoke to us through his son. This is why Jesus, when he encountered Philip, and Philip said, um, show us the Father. What did Jesus say? He said, yeah, you've uh, already seen the Father, you've seen me. Because I basically speak the same words as the Father because they've come, I come from him. You've experienced him by experiencing me. He's the word of God. King of Kings and Lord of Lords, an Old Testament title given to God in places like Deuteronomy 10 and Daniel 4. A title of total divinity. And it's applied to Jesus here and also in chapter 17. And really, if you're the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you have no rivals. you got no rivals, no competition. You're absolutely sovereign. So what's the big deal? Why, why tell us all this? Well, John is starting to show us a very different picture than is often portrayed in the Gospels. When you and I think of Jesus and we talk about Jesus, we often describe him as the Lamb who came to save the world, and we talk about his grace and his mercy and those attributes and his unconditional love. And that the first time he came, he did come to save. But John here is moving past those attributes now and moving into the Jesus, the warrior king. The warrior king. And he's saying, he, even though he is merciful and without second chances, there is a time coming when he's coming to exact justice. And he will sovereignly rule over creation. That's a very different picture than what we're used to hearing and talking about when we speak about the Lord. But we have to balance these things. We have to say, yeah, he's a God of mercy and grace and second chances and love, but he also has justice. When time runs out, he has to execute it for rebelling against him. And again, so this would provide assurance to the believers suffering under injustice, knowing that Christ has something better for them in the future, and that being allegiant to him will, will be awesome in the end because they will be redeemed and given, be able to reign with him. We see that in verse 14, for example, because these armies described as believers coming back with him to reign. So again, we can praise him knowing that something far greater awaits us. Finally, we'll come to the power of the king. The power of the king, the last portrait in verses 17 through 21. When we read this language here, it can be quite scary. It can be quite scary. I mean, he talks about eating flesh of men four times and eating the flesh of horses once. Pretty, pretty horrific language. But remember, this is symbolic. It's symbolic. And we know this because he talks about the fact that the beast and the false prophet 
are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Well, the beast and the false prophet are not two individuals. The beast is the Roman Empire. It represents like a kingdom. And the, and the false prophet is the false religion or the ideology of the day. So even though human beings make up these things, they're sort of like entities. They're not individuals. So he's not, he can't actually throw like an actual empire. Like he can't throw the NDP government, for example, into the fire. Doesn't, there's nothing to do there. It's just talking about judging the system that's in play. And of course, people make up the systems. And so he talks about their judgment as well in like verses you know, 18, for example. The flesh of all men, from the small and the great. In other words, status is irrelevant to the Lord. But again, even though it's literal, or sorry, symbolic, it's still meant to literally invoke an emotion in you and me. It's to, it's to invoke an emotion. We're to see that this meal offered up here by God is in stark contrast to the meal of the Supper of the Lamb. So, but here's, here's Jesus, a portrait of Jesus, before we have one supper meal provided by him, the marriage supper of the Lamb. On this side of judgment, we have another meal provided by God, another supper, but this time it's the people who rejected him. And we see birds, birds eating the flesh. So where the meal before is provided for us, we now become the meal for, um, if you've rejected the Lord, you become the meal for the judgment, for these, for these vultures who's carrying, who are feasting on them. And again, this language is borrowed from the Old Testament. If you look at Ezekiel 39, Jeremiah 7, you often see this picture of birds feasting on God's enemies as they um, perish. So really, this whole section is to invoke a sense of urgency, a sense of fear, if you will, with one's need to align themselves with Jesus Christ. Because key for John in this section is evil will be overthrown from the great to the small, from the political systems and ideology, religious ideologies that reject them. It's all going to be dealt with at the coming of Christ. Interestingly enough, the only one missing from here is the dragon. The beast is judged, the false prophets judged, the people are judged, the dragon is not judged yet. Satan is not part of this mix yet. He's coming next week in chapter 20. So you don't want to miss that one. So what are we to learn from this section? I think we can learn something about praising the Lord. Praising the Lord. You know, we always think about areas that we give thanks for in the Christian life. And we think about maybe things that we benefited from. Like, thank you for your financial care. Thank you for, you know, my, the way my family is turning out because of learning from your principles in Scripture. Or thank you for the fact that, you know, I'm I part of a community that cares for me. Or thank you for redeeming me and saving me and forgiving me. We think in these terms. And they're all right and proper. But here we see a scene in heaven of them thanking God and praising God for being a righteous judge. Being a righteous judge. That, that he, he, he looks at the atrocities that people have, and nations have done towards him and, he's, and he's, he says, you know what? I have to deal with this and the people are praising him for it. So again, God's a one of second chances and mercy, but we don't have to forget and praise him for the fact that he will deal with this stuff that we see 
and that's going on. How about for a sovereign rule? They sing hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Again, praising him, I mean, for his absolute control over history, that he knows what's going on, that he rules in every space and corner of this world. And I was thinking, you know, how would this <coughs> praising him for these attributes change our outlook on the trials we face? If we know, for example, if we're, if, we're, if we're people of justice, we always want justice to fall, justice to fall, justice to fall, and we become very sort of gripped by this need for it. Knowing that he is watching the atrocities that are happening, say, to you or to your family or whatever, knowing that he is a righteous judge and true and righteous for his judgments, and he will deal with it in his way and in his timing. Or even for a sovereign rule, when you want things to change so much, <laughs> politically or, or whatever it may be in any institution, knowing that the Lord will one day fix what has been wrong. How about uh, in the category of Jesus as a warrior king? So John portrays him as a warrior king, executing judgment and ruling sovereignly over all. Gordon Fee says in his commentary, many people find this language of Revelation 19 very difficult to handle. Very difficult to handle. I mean, eating flesh, eating flesh, eating flesh, right? That lake of fire, that type of language. It's hard to handle when you think of Jesus Christ in that way. Because Jesus Christ is the one that hung like defensive, defensively on the cross and, bore weak, and showed attributes of weakness, laying his life down, not fighting for himself. Very different narrative. So the question is, how do we, how often do we consider the full biblical narrative of Jesus as the warrior king? And how do we harmonize this with the portrait of Jesus also being hung, or being the lamb who hung defensively on the cross, calling us to serve him? We have to marry somehow mercy and grace and justice and all these things and look at the full bigger picture of who Jesus really is. So if Jesus were to come back today, would you or I be ready for his return? Which supper would we partake of based on our understanding of Jesus right now? If you're confident and you know that you've been made right by his blood and you've confessed your sin and you're living for him, then you will have confidence. But if you haven't made that declaration or understanding yet, you may be questioning where you might stand. The question is, are you willing to trust the Lord with your life today? Perhaps another good question for us is simply this. If someone came to you and said, um, I want to have the faith and assurance in Christ that you have, and I want to know God the way you do. I want to be part of the supper of the Lamb. Would you confidently and boldly know how to tell them to know God in that way? Would you know how to articulate how that person can share the same faith as you and how to receive the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a picture of eternal life? And again, I don't ask the question to make you feel bad in terms of like intellect, or well, can I defend it or not? It's just really a, a question of um, being able to say, can, can, um, do you fully understand the message for yourself? Because if you, if you can't articulate it for yourself, it's going to be hard to articulate for other people. So again, just uh, something to think about. Would you have the assurance of how to lead someone else to the same faith that you have?